Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. Uh, so today I am very happy to be joining you live from Studio Lab as uh, back here in Derry, New Hampshire. And of course, uh, the big news is we're here to get so Maggie is here. In ben Davis, the director of Rings and Realms, uh, joining us here at Studio Lab. So we're gonna we're gonna we're, and we're gonna continue our discussion of the Peter Jackson film. So yeah. Um, well, we started a couple weeks ago, didn't we? So we had Dune last yeah, time. Yeah. We started a couple weeks ago with Fellowship of the Ring, and I naively thought that we might talk about more than one slide, one topic. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Unlikely, so. No, um, that's fine. So we're going we're gonna to choose another topic to not complete. Correct. Today. Um, There's so no completion. In our last discussion, we were looking at the character of Elrond yep. uh, in um, the Peter Jackson films. And I want to think now about Goadriel. Um, and then if we have time, we can think about, do some comparison and contrast with Goadriel and her character as it's developed in season one of the, of the Rings of Power, too. And I think we try to keep it to Goadriel and Fellowship, but obviously referencing where she goes in the other two films. But yeah, we'll attempt to focus on what yeah. we said we would. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, one, one step at a time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> Until we get distracted by something shiny. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so five, ten minutes. But, um, okay, so go on, Adriel. Doing my exercise, right, where I try to, like, clear my mind of book go Adriel entirely mm -hmm. and just look at film go Adriel, Peter Jackson's film go Adriel. Let's Let's start with some basic observations. Now, on the one hand, she's easier to talk about, in a sense, than Elrond was because she's in a smaller portion of the right, you know, with, yeah. with with Elrond, we were focusing on both his role in Rivendell and then his role as sword delivery person later on right. in the film. Right. With Goadriel, <clears throat> there's sort of a, a more extended sequence with her there in the middle of the or second half of the Fellowship of the Ring, um, but she doesn't come back very. I mean. We get a little cameo of her. Um, right, in, in conversation with Elrond. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Somehow. Somehow, by mechanisms unknown. Right. Um, long distance telepathy, uh, presumably. Um, and we get that one glimpse when she seems to be like answering Frodo's prayer, right? Am I mm -hmm. remembering that mm -hmm. correctly? When she like pulls Frodo up yep. in his imagination or whatever is going on there, mm -hmm. right? So. Um, but those are fairly isolated. Apart from that, she's like a guest at the wedding, and then we really don't see her. Yeah, her driving anymore. elements are pretty heavily in the yeah. first part. Okay, again, I'm just trying to, uh, I'm just trying to make sure that we, um, that I'm like not overlooking anything major, like making sure I'm understanding the parameters. So let's focus, of course, first and foremost on from the, the greeting scene, mm -hmm. to the mirror scene and then the gift giving scene and also book book ending it she is the first voice we hear say, yeah, she's yeah. i mean the prologue. i think yeah. it's pretty important that she's yeah, setting right. us up for right. the next 12 hours of content yeah for sure that they make her the voice mm -hmm. of the background which means which wasn't the original intention right. right the filmmakers they started with they went through a couple they went frodo they had elijah wood give it a shot and but they landed on, on hers. I'd love to hear that process of like, not necessarily what the other one sounded like, but what was it about the role of Galadriel that right. made them kind of stick with her being yeah. that authority? 
Yeah, and it's the other thing that occurs to me is that... Although it would be funny to hear Andy Serkis do it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Sorry. The Gollum version of the uh-huh. podcast? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. But they lied, precious. <laughs> yeah. And we're off. <laughs> no, but, okay, okay. Anyway, but point is, all right. No, but what I was going to say is, because of course I was, I, was, I was not thinking about, but you're right, we have to consider the prologue first. Yeah. Because we get, especially, we get specifically tied back into that when we meet Goadriel, because we get voiceover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The telepathic voiceover from Goadriel, which... Galadriel's telepathy is used in that first scene almost as a kind of bridge back to the voiceover that we're... It's almost like, oh, were we receiving a telepathic message from Galadriel in scene one? Yeah. Is that what happened? There's a real, like, omnipotent feeling to it, isn't there? You know, like, she is the overseer of the whole thing and setting herself up as that from the beginning, so we don't question that ability later on because we've kind of already seen a hint of it. Right, right. Um, And even, yes, like the... She is in an almost omniscient narrator position mm-hmm. at the beginning. It's, you know, even in the, the way that that prologue unfolds, right? With like, but they were all deceived, right? Um, she knows what really happened. Mm-hmm. Like she's, tell- she's not only saying, like, here are the events, right? But here's like, the significance of the events in some sense. As she begins with that line, which is always a little bit hard for me because it's Treebeard's line, so I'm always, it's one of those Shall delightful it? kind of, cognitive dissonant moments when it's a line from the book but they've transplanted it which they do so many, so often in these films um, but anyway the I feel in the air you know I feel it in the water that mm-hmm. that, that, mm-hmm. that the, the opening line the opening mm-hmm. line yeah mm-hmm. exactly um, that sense of the perception of change again she is the one she is the the, the authoritative mediator right of like mm-hmm. what is happening at these moments in history, right? The significance of these moments of history. And so she's not just, again, she's not just a historical narrator. Yeah, right, she's not reporting, she's feeling, she's intuiting. Yeah, yeah. She's (laughs) rocking. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and we are absolutely invited, instructed Mm -hmm. to trust her, Mm. right? She's she's telling us the true story. I, I don't think there's any room for like unreliability in that, right? No, she's given. She is the authority in that one. Yeah, it's interesting that that it does set up her character that way to continue to be an authority throughout, right? We've they've set her up as that for us, mm-hmm. so we're just going with it, right, from here on out, right. All other interactions, we have this base to work off of. Yeah, yeah. And the way that continues, you know, when you think about them going into the real framing of her, she does kind of mm-hmm. always seem other. Yeah. Which is very different than the Rings of Power Galadriel that we get, I think. Yes. You know, we get that kind of supernatural element of this Galadriel throughout. So setting her up as that all-powerful, all-knowing fits when yeah. we meet her. You know, one of the differences, which I think actually is probably a stumbling point for a lot of people with the Rings of Power. So, this is going to sound like a digression, but it's totally not. Ready. The frame of reference... The shift in the frame of reference from the Silmarillion to the Lord of the Rings is very significant. To say the Silmarillion is told from the elf point of view. So in the narratives of the Silmarillion, you're like looking other elves in the eyes, hmm. right? But you're looking, you're looking up at the Valar, but you're looking at the sort of register of the story, the accepted register of the story. In the Lord of the Rings, the register is at Hobbit, Hobbit size, level. right? So we're looking up at the elves. We're looking up at Aragorn. We're looking up at Gandalf. We're looking... 
Sam, Frodo, Merry, Pippin in the eyes, right? Um, and this is something that is, and actually it's, it's interesting to see in the very early versions of the Silmarillion material in the Book of Lost Tales that he wrote way back, we're actually looking at the Valar in the eyes. Like, it's a, it's a, they're, they're not other. They're not remote. They're not distant. They're um, much more, to use that word I always used to criticize my students for using, relatable characters. Like, they're, they're, we're on their level, mm-hmm. narrative-wise. Um, he made the shift over the course of writing the Silmarillion to the elf point of view. And when he did, the Valar are more remote. They don't, like, they were, it was like they had the flower of the moon, and there's this, there's totally this scene where they're like, and now we shall bring the flower of the moon to the, oops! And they jump like, oh, shit, did you drop them? Oh, we dropped the moon. They're like, why are there spots in the moon? And they're like, well, it's embarrassing, but we, you know, that's the kind of story we get about the Valar. And again, it's very much sort of on their level. He shifts the register to the elves. But I, I, so I think what you're talking about is something that's really interesting mm. there. Goadriel is very much, I mean, she's this quasi celestial figure in the Fellowship of the Especially Ring. Especially in Sam's eyes. Especially mm-hmm. in you Sam's know? eyes. Yeah. And even the, even the kinds of visual effects, and again, you know better than I about this, but like the, the thing that they did with the light reflecting in her eyes, mm-hmm. right? The thing the that they do with the soft focus of the. Yeah. Of, of the uh, her color palette is almost glowing. Yes. Uh. Yes. Yeah. She. 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 They do make it look like she almost radiates light, right? Um, which is great. I mean, this, I, I'm not no complaints about any of that. But there is that sense of otherness. Mm-hmm. There is that sense of like quasi divinity about Galadriel that we get in the Fellowship of the Ring film. Whereas, like the difference in the register from the Lord of the Rings to the Silmarillion, from the Fellowship of the Ring, you know, from the Lord of the Rings films to the Rings of Power. We're now looking Galadriel in the eyes, mm-hmm. right? We are on that. Like, the, the story is from that framework, and so our in, the entire like from the very very beginning, the very first uh, compared to Galadriel is fundamentally different. So it's it's one of those things that I think informs this is not the right Galadriel. Right. They're thinking it's different than the one I met in that before. frame, yeah. right? And it's like yeah, it is it is a completely different frame. But that's a deliberate choice, just as Tolkien, when you cross that line from Lord of the Rings backwards to the Silmarillion, mm-hmm. you're you're shifting the whole perspective, you know, the whole point of view of the camera shifts. Well, and just when you think of presentation, I think that's super important. It's yeah. such a great way to delineate the same character in two different ways, that from day one, Rings of Power Galadriel is not the Galadriel we knew. Right. And of course it's not. It's thousands of years beforehand and blah, 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 blah. Right. But visually, story-wise, you're very quickly aware this isn't the same. Yeah. And that's purposeful. That's what it's meant to be. But, of course, you can also see how some people would look at that and be like, well, dang, that's not the same. Rah! Well, if it's presentation-wise, you do get some parallels of you do have Galadriel voiceover at the beginning. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yes. Um, but even that, I got more suspicious as the season went on. More suspicious as the season went on. But even on day one, I did not completely trust Galadriel's voiceover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or at least it seemed pretty clear that that woman... The whole story, right. or like there was more that could be said about that, and I don't just mean because they didn't have the rights. Yeah, um, <laughs> but like the, that, there it was, was leading. Yeah, yeah, we're not getting the whole. No. P- whereas there's no hint, like at no point do I have any resistance to the Goadriel voiceover at the beginning. Oh of no, the that's just context. Yeah, it's, I mean this, yeah. this is it is authoritative. Mm-hmm. This is spoken with that voice of authority, which Goadriel never has in the Rings of Power. That that voice of authority, voiceover. In her first scene, it links us back to the earlier voiceover. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's 
increases that sense of otherness by, if I'm remembering correctly, the first time we get that telepathic voiceover, it's while she's talking. So her mouth is saying one oh, yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. and her brain kind is saying Frodo something else. Of the to Frodo, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, oh, except for when they're walking in the woods, right? When they first. Oh yeah, they, they, we hear yeah. the whisper. We heard the whisper. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're just coming into range. Or yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, which also ties in with the Elrond line of like, oh, I can no longer hear her. You know, right. there is that right. kind of range right. idea of. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, can't catch the feed anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. But right. So no, we do. We do get the. You know, Frodo. Yeah, yeah, that's that right. I forgot about that. Eerily on um, point, Corey. Talking <laughs> is, I think, a, like that is supposed to be off-putting. Mm-hmm. I think, right? The double voice, mm-hmm. um, uh, not off-putting in a like she's, you know, freaky and creepy kind of way, but in a like, this is something's not a normal person. Right. Like this is this is beyond a normal person. And also something felt a little bit sinister is the wrong word because that seems malicious. But there is definitely like a I need to Maybe when they enter LaFlorian is, you know, the voiceover and it's it, it's kind of creepy. Mm. It's kind of it creepy. Is. You're not really sure what to expect. What's going on? And they're all suffering this trauma that just happened yeah. and it's like, uh, there's a lot. And she's whispering about evil yeah. and and not necessarily in a helpful way. You're not really sure. But what an interesting way to paint that character. We get this super unsettling, kind of weird, uncanny thing alongside this ethereal, powerful, and all-knowing. authoritative. Authoritative. Yeah. And also, like, yeah. they love her. You know, a strong, strong word. word but, yeah. but, um, we could at least say, to use the Tolkien word, perilous. Right? This is dangerous. But, mm-hmm. but it's more than just that. It's, it's not just, it's so wonderful and she's so wonderful. You may... Again, if I'm remembering correctly, Kate Blanchard is looking out of the corner of her eye when she's doing it mm-hmm. over at him, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which gives it that extra sense of like, I'm saying something shady on the side to you mm-hmm. that I don't want to say to. But I'm gonna make else. eye contact so you know I'm talking to right. you. Good sign. Okay. How about that? Trying again here. We're uh, um, struggling, <laughs> making sure that uh, trying to get um, a clear internet connection. We'll hope that this is better. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how we do here. Um, so, let us, with hope, pick Proceed. up our conversation. So, we we're talking about the temptation of Galadriel scene. Ben, you were just saying how, um, as a kid, you didn't get it. Like you didn't understand what happened. Like what was at stake yep. in that scene, and why she like freaked out and. And why, the eye passed a test. That line never stuck out to me. You're absolutely right. Like. Yeah, and why did he offer her the ring? Right. Um, do you think? Yeah, it just felt it felt really random. Mm. Mm. So, I think looking at how Kate Blanchett plays that, especially afterwards, when she returns to normal vision, right? When she returns to normal vision, it she's panting, mm. right? She looks like she's recovering. It has been a physical ordeal from something. Yes, um, and that's what she like. She's like. When she says, like, I passed the test. Mm. And the way that she says it, like, she's surprised. Right? I mean, she doesn't say, holy crap, I passed the test. But that's basically what she's saying. Right? Uh, it has that, that element to it. Um, it gives that sense that something was just transacted. That she herself did not know how it was going to pan out. I wonder if that was the ring. Because... That's the only thing I can think of that would push her to that point. And doesn't right. she say something after, like, I will retreat now and go 
I will diminish and diminish go, into, and the go into the West. Yeah. So that was her opportunity to take up the ring and become something big yes. and powerful and terrifying. So that the experience there, like, she has, she says, as I, rec- I mean, and again, I'm trying not to just like blur the lines of mm-hmm. what she says in the book and what she says in the film. Um, so I'm always asking for confirmation from people who might remember the films better than I. Like, she does say this, right? Um, she does say that her heart has long desired this thing that he's offering, right? Yeah, yeah, he does. She says that at the beginning. Okay, so, um, in other words, she's played this scenario out many times. The difference, and the reason for, like, the panting and the, like, surprise at the end is the presence of the ring, I agree. Mm -hmm. Like, she didn't know how she would actually do in resisting the temptation that the ring was going to offer And she must have been thinking about it for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Right. But the transfer, the visual transformation, right? Um, in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen. That's not the ring acting on her. That's her responding to the ring. Right. Right. right? And it's just a question of like, and she's, it's like a dark place that she is going to in her mind. Mm-hmm. Right. She's playing that out. So. The, the difference that I'm trying to tease out, because I think this is a significant difference, um, it's the biggest difference, in my opinion, between this, ver- this moment in the book and this moment in the film. In the book, the lines in the film are taken almost word for word out of the book, but they are, in my opinion, radically recontextualized in this way. In the book, she is, it's after the fact. Mm-hmm. Like any temptation she's had is already over. And she's explaining to Frodo here's, let me lay out for you what this would look like. Here's what would happen if I did take the ring. Um, And I'm not saying that there isn't a real test in that moment. There is a real test. But that speech is not the test. Mm -hmm. She's not experiencing the temptation to be that dark and terrible queen that she's describing. She's explaining it to Frodo. Frodo, here's why you don't want me to take the ring. Mm -hmm. Because, like, so in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen. um, And I would not be dark. But, you know, she's, it, it's, it's like lecture mode. It's not mm. spontaneous right. experience on her part mode. But lecture mode in a film like this doesn't give me the threat. Right, no, exactly. The, the exactly. push and the pacing yeah. that yeah. you get so from they, that scene. So they took that and they shifted that. Yeah. Well, and they played on something. She does appear changed at that moment in the book, doesn't she? There is, uh, they, it's, it's one of those things where, like, they can imagine, like they can see it in their mind, and it's like, did she put it in there? Like, are they seeing something with their eyeballs? Mm. Are they seeing something in their brains? Did she tell them to see something in their yeah. brain? It's like, it's almost like the moment when, uh, it's not the same thing, but it's almost like the moment when um, they're hearing the song of Gildor and the elves in the Shire, mm-hmm. and it's like translating itself in their heads, sort of, right? You know, and the, uh, it's... But it's weird. Like a magic might be happening. Th- there's magic happening, mm-hmm. and, and we don't know exactly the boundaries of it, as so often happens when magic happens in, in, in Tolkien. Um, so yeah, there's a there is a sort of, but it's not like that. And it's sure. and 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 the main thing is, it's I don't think. I, I think there's almost no moment in the book when she is purely experiences when she is uh, the like the the patient of the Alec, where, where stuff is happening to, to her, right? She's in control. She's mm. doing it. Um, everything that is done. So if, a, if they are given some kind of vision, I think she's giving it, mm-hmm. right? But again, 
it's like visual aid to lecture mode. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. right. Um, so I think um, that it's, um, and again, like that's just an observation of a difference, right? But that seeing that difference really, to me, emphasizes the significance of that dramatic temptation moment. Yeah, I mean, having. the threat is so much higher because we're watching it. Right. Is she going to snap out of it or not? That's the question, right? She's in that moment. She's mm. gone dark. Is she going to come back? And that's what happens, right? She comes when that's what seems to take it out of her. Like that's when she starts panting and everything. Mm-hmm. When she comes back, and the light resumes. And in that moment, also, it looks like she's less soft-filtered. Mm. She looks more wrinkled, more aged, more human, more human. Mm. In that moment, as soon as she comes out, and then like she resumes her normal shots. Yeah, she can both, but I also remember being yeah. completely struck by the visual of her as the Dark Queen with the hair flowing back because this was such early days of CG. Right. Like, it, it wasn't cartoonish, but it was so over-the-top dramatic. You yes. know, that, that resolution change between her skin and the darkness was mm. just like, whoa, that it had such an impact because we hadn't seen anything like that before. Yeah, and I actually like the... Um, there's, no, there's no real attempt at realism there it's, mm. it's like you know you're looking at something through a strange visual filter mm-hmm. but that's the effect that's what they're going for exactly yeah. that's what they're going for like it's it's it, it, it's not like a failed you know cg effect mm-hmm. it's it's like no we're seeing galadriel but we're seeing her hyperbole yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah we're seeing her through this weird lens we're see, like our our own vision is being distorted when mm-hmm. we when we when we see her um seems to be uh uh, th- anyway, so, um, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Tarlenian. This is the, that's the line from, uh, uh, from the book. She stood before Frodo, seeming now tall beyond measurement and beautiful beyond enduring, terrible and worshipful. Mm. That's why, does she change? Right. Is this like, uh, what, again, what, that, is he, what is he actually seeing? What is he perceiving? Yes. Seeming now is right. the critical phrase there, right? Like, how are his impressions being worked on? In the, but I think they are being worked on. Um, then she let her hand fall, and the light faded, and suddenly she laughed again. And lo, she was shrunken, a slender elf woman, clad in simple white, hmm. right? Um, so from an adaptation perspective, how do you show that? Right. How do you really decide yeah. mm-hmm. how to yeah. show that? And, and notice what it's, uh, what she's tall, beautiful, terrible, terrible in the sense of inspiring terror, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Terrible and worshipful. That juxtaposition, terrible and worshipful. Ooh. Yeah. 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 But what you don't see is dark. Yeah. Like it's sort of the the change in the color palette that Jackson does mm. is very different from what we get there. Mm. And again, she's, I, that moment seems like a, a, like a visual aid, right? To like, let me, um, um, you know, and, and I would not be dark, um, you know, but you know, in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen, right? And he's like, and, and then it's basically like, like this, mm. right? Um, and the weirdness of that, like the terrible and worshipful, right? I think she wants to give them a taste. I think it's important for Frodo to know what would it look like if a great good person took the ring mm. and used it, right? And this is the clearest glimpse that we get. We get some narrative projections, people saying, like, we get some hints that Aragorn might be able to challenge the Dark Lord. 
and that would presumably not go well long term, right? But we don't know what that would look like. Mm. We don't know how it would affect him. We don't know, and you know, so Goadriel gives <clears throat> to us, and in this moment, more importantly, to Frodo, a glimpse mm -hmm. of that. But again, it's at least my reading of the text in this moment is it's um, theoretical, right? Again, it's not something that she is in that moment indulging. Oh, but then she pulls herself back. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a. It's an explanation. Mm. It's a demonstration. She's, she's showing him something on purpose, I think. Well, and as a device, it's also quite helpful because we had the little phrasing at El Council of Elrond of, oh, this ring, it is a gift, you yes. know, and then that right, kind of right. inference of like, oh, well, that's a problem. Yes. And then later on, we get the same, like, through meat would do. It, it's just kind of reiterating this, this inanimate object is actually a really big threat. And for yes. people that are not aware of Tolkien and haven't, you know, spent years being scared of this object as well. Well, why on earth is a big bad going to be a ring? I, it's right. not a threat. Right. But if you build it up like this and you show the terror that it has in Gandalf, the terror that it brings out of Galadriel, we do feel that. So I guess it is just kind of really solidifying Yeah, it is an interesting that. progression when you think about it comparing how, uh, with Gandalf, right, mm -hmm. it's all in Ian McKellen's acting, right? Don't me right. right. Um, and the it, moment when the the um, speech of Mordor is visible on the ring, and he goes, oh, yeah. oh, like you can just see him be like, yeah, crap, yeah. it's that one." <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, uh, yes. And that and the awesome delivery of that line. There are a few who can. Mm -hmm. right? Like I, I was not so I was, resigned. Right. Yes. The this is my life yes, now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I love that. Um, but anyway. In Gandalf, it's kind of distant. Like it's we sh we see from the outside his emotional response to the temptation, right? Or like his fear of being tempted, mm -hmm. right? With Galadriel, we see in the film it acting on her more directly. Like mm -hmm. she's like it flips a switch, which young Ben Davis was very confused about, <laughs> right? I mean, it was cool. It was yeah. cool. Yeah, I yeah. was. I was. Just kind of rolling with it. But it also stood out to you, which is probably also the point. You know, like it stood out as like a, wait, what? But yeah. exactly, well, the ring did what? You know, that right. was kind of the point as well. I think, yeah, I mean, what you were to just saying you. too about like just continuing to show the ring's power, you know, throughout to reinforce mm -hmm. yeah. that throughout the film. Um, I think I, I even, I would have taken that away. Mm -hmm. Having seen right. it the first time, okay, rings like all right. I'm I'm getting that ring is dangerous and the, powerful, right? And to see that coming from her, who we've just said is our authority. You know, she was our voice at the beginning. She right. was the powerful, ethereal one that we trust. You know, completely. To see her go through that, you're like, oh. And what's more, she was talking about how deceitful the ring, how powerful and deceitful the ring was, mm. and Sauron was, right? So, um, like, she is to see the person from whom we learned, like everything we mm. know about the ring and the rings of power, be overcome, temporarily, over yeah. at, at the very least, almost overcome, if not temporarily overcome and then recovered from, you know. Um, but anyway, to see her fall into that does, I think, is meant to have a big impression. But I, but I, I think I agree that that is the direction that we're being pushed there. It's all about the elevation of the dangerousness of the ring, right? Of the mm -hmm. peril of the ring. Um, and therefore, by extension, it does make her vulnerable. 
in the only time and the only way she's ever vulnerable. In Jackson's. In Jackson's mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Because she's, again, she's high and mm-hmm. omniscient. Um, and, and then generous and powerful. And generous and powerful and, and beautiful yeah. and, and all of these things, right? Um, yes, yes. Um, she is the one who is even in some sense guiding and assisting the quest afterwards, right? With that um, strange but cool scene where Frodo gets physically lifted up off the ground by some force, right? When in his mm. little mental picture, she extends her hands and pulls him up. Mm-hmm. And then she's not there, but he's been physically pulled up, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't get that, but I kind of love it. Mm-hmm. I kind of love it because I don't get it, actually. Like, I, I think that that's really fun. Um, but again, like that, she goes back to that kind of, again, quasi-divinity role. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I do perform miracles. I'm just not going to overthink it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, you might want to pray to me. Mm-hmm. Like, it might, it, that might work out for you if you, you do that. I mean, like, it's, that's the kind of role that she has moving forward from the bestowal of gifts. I was going to say, what about her as a gift giver? Like, yeah. I'd be interested to talk about that and what she gives to each person. And it's almost another, like, divinity role. Right. Yeah. Um, and Santa and Narnia is, is what it brought up to me. That, too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there is actually a... Well, that's a really fascinating compare and contrast in which I shall not indulge in too much detail. Or oh, else. Lord. That there, there, there's a Be lot another there. episode. Friendships um, were nearly ruined. But <laughs> <laughs> what, by Santa Claus showing up in Narnia? Yeah. Not giving Tol- you a knife? Tolkien was Dagger, like, sorry. no, Tolkien was like, I'm out. <laughs> Santa Claus, you lost me at Santa Claus. Done. I was like, I was hanging on by a thread with the fawns <laughs> and, and the nymphs and the, like, and the scandals. And then, and then, no, no, no. Santa Claus, I'm out. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway. Her as gift giver. Um, so I think that that sort of quasi-divine role that she has is really emphasized with the file of Galadriel. The, you know, a light to you, a light when all other lights go out. She is going to be the light to him when all other lights go out. Um, and she does say it's not her, it's the light of Eärendil, yeah. right? She does say that. Um, but... But we associate it with her. With her. Yeah. Arendo yeah. is not a character. Right. That is not a name we even right. know. Um, I mean, most beloved star. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the only context we get. Mm-hmm. Our most beloved star. And she shines like a star. So when it's held yeah. up, we picture her. Right. Okay. Yeah. Great. So um, even that sense, right? Not like the most important star or the greatest of all the stars, but beloved. our most beloved star. It's important because I love it so much. Right. Right. Um, since it's my favorite star, I'm going to give it to you. And so, so they're going to be like, I've got the light of Galadriel's favorite star, right? Yeah. You know? And seriously, do we have any other context? I'm trying to remember, is the name Arendel mentioned anywhere else in that film? Like, do we have any other context? I'm looking at the two of you. I can't I think, think so. of a moment. Frodo say it? Isn't it part of what he says when he... Oh, yeah, when, he's, when he's chanting. I don't know that that counts. I don't think that counts. Yeah. Um, um, technically, the one other place where... Yeah, the name is used, but yeah, yeah there's no context um, ever given. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, especially before that to contextualize it when that happens, right? Um, so, and, but then working backwards from there, um, 
What does she give Aragorn in the movie? Nothing. 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 She given. Gimli gets I hairs. Have, I have. Uh, Hobbits get I have daggers. No greater gift to give than the one you already bear. Oh, oh good shout. Right. All right. Just the the she's just it's just, a, it's just a, a call out to yeah. the necklace. Right. But yeah. he gets the knife from uh, Caliborn. Caliborn hands him a knife. Like. And we get to see Caliborn. Yeah. True. Yeah. True. Bonus. Yeah. Caliborn is a great giver of gifts. That's the rumor. Anyway, um, <laughs> sorry, I just can't. I can't. I'm like incapable of not teasing Caliborn when he comes up. But um, <laughs> I'm so looking forward to Caliborn's appearance in season two of The Rings of Power. And we assume uh, it's coming. They've already I alluded to so it. So excited about getting more Caliborn. Um, I want to know where she finds him. Ooh, you've been there, oh, hiding. Man. I just oh. <laughs> anyway, anyway, okay. Peter Jackson's collateral. So she gives Aragorn nothing, yeah. but only draws attention to the fact that she's, like, given her permission for him to marry her granddaughter. Um, and, though that's not emphasized. No. No family relationship is emphasized in there. No, no, but you can tell she's happy about it. You know, you she already have it, a wonderful obviously. gift. It's better than anything I could yeah. give you. Like, that does yeah. raise up that relationship, I think, yeah. whether it's her blessing or not. It's just... But there's no, um, there's no whiff of... I'm talking to the in-laws right. when he's there. Okay. I didn't think so, but... Um, okay. So, so, I have to be careful. It's her acknowledgement of, of, of that gift. Okay. And then we have... Um, yeah, some of the shifts in the gifts are, are odd. The hobbits get daggers. The hobbits get daggers. Sam, Sam gets, gets rope. rope. Um, Frodo gets the star. Frodo gets the, yeah, he gets the, the file. And Gimli gets three. The restraining order. Gimli. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Gimli gets three hairs and Gimli a restraining three order. Hairs, right, off screen. And Legos gets the bow. Yeah. Right. Which is awesome. Mm. Which means. Best. Teenage Ben was like. Very oh, yeah. into that. You were like green with envy on the Lothlorien bow? Did you make sure the two towers were. Right, right. <laughs> So, I the, the file of Galadriel, Gimli's hairs, and Legolas's bow are the only gifts that are the same from book to film. Like they've done bunches of. So, um, you skip over Boromir entirely. Boromir just totally gets the shaft. No, <laughs> he's like not, he's not even in the scene. Nope. I think Gladriel knows his time is numbered, so he's yeah. just like, I'm not even going to waste. Right, but wasn't he? I was going like, to give you this gold belt. But, right, uh, but uh, seriously, you're only going to use it for what? A week and a half? Wasn't Forget he also it. kind of ashamed the whole time? I wonder if he just like ducked out and was like, I don't want to be here. And he, he does that looking away yeah, in the like first he, scene, like he can't yeah. handle it. And then he never comes yeah. back until the end. Yeah, until afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah, Boromir getting no gift. Um, it's interesting to me. He gets a cloak, I guess. Well, they, it, all, get they all get cloaks, mm. but that's... And some Lundus. That's like a door prize. That's not even a present so much, mm. you know, as, I guess. Swag. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's just the Lundus and the, and, the, and, the, and the cloak is just... Food and clothing, yeah, yeah, that's just... But, okay, um, so patterns, though... Except with the exception of Aragorn, who gets nothing, and let's obviously we have to discount Boromir because he gets even less than nothing. Um, he doesn't get acknowledged. 
Um, he doesn't even get explicitly passed over. He's just <laughs> ignored. Um, and Gimli, whose gift is eminently and... Um, creepily. Creepily non-functional. <laughs> Everyone else's gift is functional. It's a, she's explicitly equipping them for the journey to mm-hmm. come. Daggers which you will use to fight later. A rope which will save, save your you. life later on. A um, which will save you. The bow, which is going to mm-hmm. be useful to Legolas later on, um, you know, with which he's going to perform great deeds. Aragorn gets a knife. Aragorn gets a knife, because like, he needs something, so he gets a knife. Um, whereas the gifts that are given in the book are much more persistently ceremonial. Hmm. The belts, right? Gold and silver belts. Boromir gets the gold belt. The two, Hot Merry and Pippin, get silver belts. Um, there are, they're, they're either ceremonial or they're about, I want to say about identity. That sounds like a very English professory thing to say, but um, Sam gets his box of dirt, right? And Maloran seed, which is totally useless on the journey, right? But it, this is him. Mm-hmm. Not only That's him cool. as gardener, mm-hmm. this is him as like future caretaker of the shop. And it's what he values. So for yeah. him, it has great importance and value. Exactly. exactly. And with Aragorn, even in a sense, Legolas's bow gets kind of recontextualized in this same kind of way. And Gimli's present fits in in this way. Like it's something, what does he value? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the play is on gold, right? What do dwarves value? Cash. That's what dwarves, you know, gold. Mm. Like, give me gold. That's what, like, the elves <laughs> expect him to say. When she says, I'll, you know, I'll give you, what would a dwarf, you know, ask? Um, and it's almost like a setup to be like, let me guess, right. money, <laughs> right? I mean, okay, that's, that's, that's the, the sort of, not that she's making a joke. Right, expectation. It, it's like a setup, yeah. right? Um, and he asks, he does in fact ask for gold and silver. Mm. But it's the gold and silver of her hair instead. And that defines him. Like he, mm-hmm. um, and he explicitly contrasts it. Like it is more precious than all the gold and silver. And, um, and that it's going to, you know, and when she says, what would you, what are you going to, mm. she says hesitatingly, and what would you do with such a gift? Or do I want to know, right? <laughs> um, and, he, and he says, treasure it. Just some cloning. Right. Right. Exactly. Don't I'd worry. It, I'd take it back to the lab. <laughs> I'll juice it up. Me with your but interesting materials. there yeah. of like comparing the changes because when you were talking about you know Sam and his box of dirt, you're like, well, of course they didn't do that in the film. That wouldn't read well. It wouldn't right. help. It wouldn't push things along. It wouldn't. Especially equip. since they're skipping the scouring of the shire. But anymore. they also gave Gimli the one that also doesn't do any good. So. How and who did they make that decision, right. you know? So in the film, the effect of that is to make Gimli stand out even more. True. It stands out already in the because he has that whole back and forth. Yeah. She doesn't have an idea. Mm-hmm. Like, she's, he's the only one whom she's like, what do you want? I have no idea. Right. Um, so and he that stands divide out. between the dwarves and the elves is so much, and I feel like it's so clear in the films that it is quite nice to have that element. Yeah. And in the book, it's that. like an acknowledgement of that. Yeah. You know, she's basically saying, I'm not going to presume that I know what a dwarf would want, mm. right? Um, I want to hear from you what you would want. And I think that that very much is like a bridge-building gesture that she's making mm-hmm. at that point. Um, anyway, so Gimli's gift stands out more. Mm-hmm. It's more because it's like the only totally impractical present that she gives to anybody. Um, whereas lots of people get impractical, like immediately 
not immediately practical gifts, certainly not equipping for the journey gifts. Um, in particular, Aragorn. Aragorn gets the LSR. It's him. Like, his name is given to him. It's like, uh, so you're going to take the name Alessar, so I'm just going to pin this Alessar on, you. on your chest. Like, like a name tag. Yeah. <laughs> it's like his shiny name tag, right? Um, it's like he is, in that moment, becoming that person. I mean, it's yeah. a huge deal. And, of course, also, the other rider that she gives him, right, the little extra bonus gift is the scabbard for his sword, which doesn't seem like a big deal, except it's a scabbard which will magically prevent the sword that was broken before from ever being broken again. Kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. Moving forward, right? Um, That's like hope for the future. Mm -hmm. Especially since we were talking about this in Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, When Aragorn at the Council of Elrond, because it comes up in the context, right, of Boromir being like, I'm seeking for the sword that was broken and everything. And, and Aragorn's like, yeah, that's basically me, right? What he's undertaking when he's going to go to Gondor, he's like, okay, I'll do the Elendil. I will come. Let's do Last Alliance. Let's, let's take up arms and I'll, I will. But the role there is to die, right? This didn't work out for Elendil. The sword was broken. That's why the sword was broken. Right. Um, Aragorn is basically saying, I am willing to die. And we see him play that out, right? That's what happens at the Black Gate. Like, let's go and um, maybe all sacrifice ourselves at the Black Gate just to try to give Frodo a chance to mm-hmm. succeed. Um, so he does, in fact, all the way through play out that role, which is focused not towards victory, towards success or survival of himself, but um, to do what must be done. To give opportunity. To give opportunity and to sacrifice himself. So when she gives the scabbard that says, and the sword that was broken now will never break again, that's a kind of hope, Mm. which is, you know... And protection, you know, yeah. Which says a lot. And especially because we do have that scene that we talked about with Elrond delivering the sword. We know the importance of that item and the power that it holds. So the fact that there is something that could continuously protect it Yes. Kind of a big deal. And that's the other thing that I was thinking about mm. is in the film, that moment, they take away that, like, and I am now... She doesn't exactly put a crown on his head, but she does, like, everything shy of that. I mean, pinning on the Alessar, right? I'm going to give you the name. I'm going to bestow upon you the thing, the elf stone, which shares the name. LSR means elf stone, and that's what it is. So I'm going to put the thing on you whose name you're going to take as king, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it is still only an anticipation, but it is like a, I am... A bringing of the sword. Yeah, exactly. So of. all of that, that moment in the film is completely shifted to mm-hmm. that moment with Elrond. Um, and so they remove Galadriel entirely from that, Dynamic, right from that element, um, and make her just an equipper for the journey, even I, in mystic ways. I hate to do this, but you I'm running. Yeah. yeah, sorry, my dad is babysitting, so I'm going to get home before uh, bath and bedtime. <laughs> but I'll be here for the whole of next week. So right, I'm passing so we'll it on to yeah. We'll awesome. These guys up. are still going. Don't worry. Okay, I'll talk to you guys soon. Microphone. I will take off my microphone. I promise <laughs> to not talk the whole way home in the car. And you guys right. slide together. We should maybe turn off your microphone sooner rather than later. I'll do it now. Okay. Um, all right. So, um, yeah, anyway, so. Let's go ahead and unplug it. Okay. 
wouldn't trust me either. You guys keep talking. Okay. There we go. There it is. There it is. Excellent. Um, so, so big picture for Galadriel. Like Galadriel's role in the film. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, she's this omniscient framework character. Yep. Right. At the end, she's this um, quasi-divine inter- like miracle worker, right? Right, which, I mean, is not dissimilar from the way we're introduced at the beginning, right? right. She's very much right. this high above, like, 10,000-foot view of what's happening. Right. She almost descends to interact with yes. the company. Yes. Yeah. They're actually, it's interesting what I was um, talking about at eye level, mm-hmm. right? And I meant that wholly metaphorically. But in the film, it's quite literal. Mm. They're always looking way up. At Galadriel. That's true. I mean, even in that scene where she's look, she's standing on something. She's yeah. tall already. Kate Blanchard is tall already, and she's standing on something. Um, they're all looking up at her in that scene. Yeah, I I actually hadn't thought she, of that. She seems to physically. I'm, I'm I'm like visually in my memory, thinking back through all the Kate Blanchett scenes. She looks like the tallest person in the room every time she's on camera, yeah. as far as I can recall. Yeah, even with... I'm, and the only other time we really see her is when she's giving the gifts and Aragorn and... I, I mean, she's not even in the same frame with Legolas, so it's really exactly. just Aragorn. And I, it, you, you still get that similar kind of feeling. Yes, yes. Um, of, like... I don't think people do kneel in front of her. Like, the hobbits don't have to. Mm-hmm. But there's th- there's that sense of it, mm. right? As if like she is bestowing gift on someone who's kneeling in front of her. There's there's that same gap. Yeah. It feels that way. Yeah. Um, we certainly never see. I don't think we see, do we? Like the backs of Viggo Mortensen's head, right? And her passing and being obviously the same height. Like I don't think we, we don't ever get any reminder that she's actually. Yeah. You know. Around the same height as Aragorn or something. Like it's yeah. yeah, no, it's just a trick of the camera angles, right? Every right. every every time shooting a little low. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, she's in that elevated position consistently. Therefore, putting all of this pressure on that temptation moment in the middle, that influence of the ring moment, and instead of having that bring down her character in some sense, right? What it does is elevate the ring. Mm-hmm. Holy cow, look how dangerous the ring is. Even she, the quasi-divine one, right, has issues, right? It, it can get to her, too. Yeah. It can affect her, too. It can even change her light into darkness, like with the whole, um, you know, photonegative version thing that we get, you know, in the CGI there. What do you make of, then, the because there's a scene later on in the film uh where her and uh, Elrond are communicating. Yeah. I feel like that, if I remember correctly, she's looking like up and to the left mm-hmm. of the camera. So she's looking up to Elrond and he's, I don't know, looking out the yeah. window at her. I'd have to, I don't remember that scene as clearly. What are they talking about? It's before he goes and gives the sword, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. I mean, yes, it is well before that, but I believe it's in the two towers before. Uh, it's the conversation that I, we are led to believe convinces him to send elves to Helm's Deep. Because oh. she also does, it, it blends into this voiceover bit, not unlike the, the prologue, where she's talking about Faramir. And, yeah. Um, 
She's narrating what's happening to Frodo. Yeah. I wonder why I have always paid so little attention to this scene. I have very few memories of this scene. Like, I, I can just physically recall it. Yeah. Like, visually recall it. But I remember very little of, like, I can't come up with any of the dialogue from that scene in my head. That's very strange. I remember, I bet it's a trailer line where she says the quest will claim his life. Ah, uh, okay. I bet, I bet they were like, that'll be, that'll be great for the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what everybody likes. Certain death. Um, uh, yes. Okay. Um, huh. All right. I'm not sure how that impacts. I don't know either. Is that the, is that the last we see of her as well? In the film? Is the pulling Frodo well, to his feet scene afterwards? Other than, oh, no, you're right. Yeah. And then obviously the gray hair. And then, the, yeah. And the wedding. She's in the crowd behind Arwen. Is she? I think so. Oh, I missed that. I think she is. I believe you. I just missed it. Maybe. Anyway. Um, yeah. She is very much this. It's hard to reconcile sometimes in the movies exactly where, why she's put into the story where. Right. Um, there doesn't seem to be, I was going to say there's no rhyme or reason. That feels harsh. I don't think right. that's true because it doesn't necessarily feel inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, like where she lifts up Frodo, that's a, a such a powerful moment. Yeah. Um, I love that. But it's... I mean, what does it say about who she is? I don't know how much we can necessarily draw from the little pieces that we get after uh, yeah. the Fellowship um, leaves Lothlorien. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I think that scene, the, fel- the Frodo scene, feels uh, most significant for those, and you know, for the latter portions, the post-Lothlorien part just in that it shows her ongoing connection it invites us to imagine that Mm. she is still involved or potentially involved right um but we don't see her right right we're kind of left to imagine if she's involved or whatever but but that that kind of again like i am watching you from afar and maybe you might want to pray to me or something is the, that kind of general sense that I yeah. think um, that we have. She doesn't... She doesn't move the characters forward. This is one other thing that is very interestingly different. The book suggests that there is... Suggests a couple times that there is some kind of cause and effect relationship between Galadriel's testing of Boromir and his turning. Mm. Um, One can ask the question. We're invited, I think, to ask the question. Had Boromir not gone to Lothlorien, would he have done what he did? Um, Maybe. Now, I'm not saying the answer is definitely no, but it invites us to ask the question. Um, Sam's assessment is that it was in Lorien that Boromir made the call. Um, we are given reason to think 
his attitude towards Frodo in the ring is clearly different after they leave Lorien than it was before. Yeah. Maybe that's just geography. Maybe because they're getting closer to parting. Maybe yeah. because they're closer to Mordor and the power of the ring is stronger. There are lots of ways in which you could potentially explain it that doesn't pin the blame on Galadriel. Mm -hmm. But, um, and I'm not saying Sam or any of the other characters explicitly pin the blame on Galadriel and be like, drat that Galadriel, you know, what she did to Boromir. Nobody in the book ever says that. But, um, nevertheless, his testing seems to have a negative effect on him. He yeah. fails the test. I'm not right. saying that's not his fault No, that but he it, fails the test. It, it feels like it would do as much to strengthen his resolve, you know, before he knows what he's going to do before, like when they leave Lorien because he's already made the his mind up because yeah. Yeah. he's already been confronted with the scenario. Yeah, exactly. And like, again, maybe it would have happened anyway. Like there's no way mm. of knowing and there's no, but it's, um, we don't get, there's that reference, like, he looks away from her, right? Mm -hmm. Boromir does, in that moment in which he's shown in Lothlorien, which he's generally not, as we said. His absence at the gift scene is strange. Yeah. Um, I, I have to wonder if he just wasn't on set that day. <laughs> <laughs> like, if, if there was, because I, yeah. I can't think of a good story reason why we're just, we're ignoring Boromir. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Boromir is, uh, uh, does not count when it um, comes to gift giving. Unworthy of a gift. But it's interesting what you've said. I mean, I feel like you can, you can read that into the film. Mm -hmm. Again, if, if you have that, um, you can place that in, uh, you know, when um, Boromir and Aragorn are talking after the fact, yeah. he's explaining what she showed to him. Yes. Um, this is one of his only sort of softer scenes mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so you can read that into that scene but without having that additional context right he's just talking about home right exactly exactly um yeah so i think i don't think that and this is something um uh ilana motion who is uh uh, volunteers with us in film film and, and um, was the host of Osmoot down in Australia. We were hanging out uh, down there and she I think just made a really great point she was talking on Twitter about this but just she just did a rewatch of uh, the Peter Jackson films with her husband and was thinking about some things and the point that she made was the impression that she gets is that the Peter Jackson films are persistently, like the themes that they emphasize are persistently different from the themes that are emphasized in the book. Mm. But they are not different from the theme, like, but they are themes that Tolkien emphasizes. Yeah, it's like, almost like they didn't have the ability to explore, or you, I mean, you just pick a couple themes and you just, you just ride those all the way through mm -hmm. the films. Mm -hmm. And those th those themes are native mm -hmm. to Tolkien's world. But it's almost like the dialogue, right? Which they'll use dialogue from Tolkien, but they'll pick it up and they'll put it into another place and put it into a different character's mouth, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
they do almost the same thing with the themes. Yeah. And it usually works as those lines of dialogue usually work when they do it. Um, it's only when you, it's hard for me especially because I, I, I do audio, right? So I'm like literally hearing Treebeard's voice when she's saying that line at the beginning. And it's, it's, just, it's just always like uh, cognitive dissonance. Like I, I, I cannot not experience the cognitive dissonance. First thing you do. Um, yeah, like thing. first line of the film, I'm like, oh, there it is, Twitch. Um, but uh, but again, it's not, it's not to say that it's wrong. It's not to say that it's bad. Um, it works. It works in the film. Um, and the same, same, same thing with the transplantation of themes, mm-hmm. right? Let's take um, the one that Awana was pointing to in, on uh, Twitter was how in The Two Towers, the theme of hope and despair is made very prominent mm-hmm. um, with, you know, culminating in Theoden riding out, right, and Gandalf showing up. Um, hope and despair is a huge and important theme. But hope and despair, that's developed in the Battle of Pelennor Field, not the Battle of Helm's Deep in mm-hmm. the book, right? So they've taken, you know, like the despair, we get the despair of Denethor and the gloom of the riders and Gandalf trying to encourage people and the Black Rider coming in through the Shattered Gates um, and the pyre of Denethor and the defeat of the Witch King and the, uh, the, the arrival of the Rohirrim and the defeat of the Witch King and the arrival of, uh, you know, of Aragorn. Hope and despair, right? I mean, it's, it's, we get this heavy focus on hope and despair throughout those chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do it in the films, except not there. Right. They do it at Helm's Deep instead. And that's fine. Like, okay, it works. It works really well. Mm-hmm. And it, but it's, but I, I think that Alana is right. I think that this is something we can see all over the place. Them taking Tolkien ideas... And they're working with these ideas. They're developing these themes. But they don't do it where you would expect it to be developed. Mm. If you're just as, I mean, and even many things, even the like reluctant Aragorn character, I think can be explained in a similar way. Like the things that Aragorn is going through are not alien to Tolkien's world. Mm -hmm. They're alien to Aragorn, but they're not alien to Tolkien's world. And yet they're like, okay, but let's take this and let's, let's give it to Aragorn instead um you know the same kind of like uncertainty that the hobbits sometimes feel right let's let's give that to aragorn instead Mm -hmm. and so is it a change yeah huge change yeah but it's not but it still isn't um like just strangely bizarre it it it, it doesn't just go in a different direction so i guess we've strayed off galadriel quite a bit yeah, a little bit now. But I'm, I'm yeah. good. So, like, Just Pelennor Field, so what would you, what sort of themes do you feel like they were developing then in the film? In the film. If not Hope and Despair? Because I feel like it's there. Uh, I mean, Theoden in a similar role. Sort of, but think. But, and Denethor's doing a similar thing, but it feels very obviously you know we don't get the sort of depth that we yeah. that we get in the book and it's yeah. it's the even Denethor twisted hard. yeah uh, yeah his character's so different yeah um again it just feels like maybe there wasn't enough time to... and with denethor film denethor it's not about despair it's like it's about crazy you know i mean yeah that's a good way to put that he's he's yeah i think that's the difference is yeah because in in the he's out of touch from the beginning right in the in the books you get the sense that 
um, you know, he's a fighter. He's there, yeah. and he's he's been ready, and yeah. he's been fighting this for a long time. Yeah. And he and then he just yeah, you're right. He just reaches. He a comes to that moment point. where he gives up. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he doesn't. You're right. He gives up. It's not like I mean, he does go crazy, but it's you're right. It feels like crazy in the film as opposed to just despair, and and hope. Um, the arrival of the Rohirrim. Notice what perspective we don't get when the Rohirrim show up. The view from the city. We get the effect on the orcs, mm-hmm. right? They hear the horns and are mm-hmm. like, oh, let's all turn around and face the other way, right? Like, fear stricken in their enemies? Yes. What we don't get is the view from Minas Tirith. Everything looks horrible. We're on the verge of despair. What? Horns, horns wildly blowing. And the moment Pippin is the, ch- is the channel for that, mm-hmm. right? And Pippin like, can never hear the sound of a horn again, right? But it brings tears to his eyes. That sense of like, hope is born. We thought there was no, everyone's given up on the Rohirrim, but they're here. How did they get here? Right in the nick of time, or is it in time even, right? When the Rohirrim show up, in the film. I mean, look, and I'm not taking anything away from it. It's a powerful moment, possibly my favorite moment in the entire films. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the emphasis. It's different. It's different. And think of the way in which they transplant, again, very effectively, and one of my favorite elements in the film, the death chant. Mm-hmm. Death! They're all chanting as they ride, um, which doesn't happen until after Theoden's death. Right, and in that moment in the book does feel very hopeless. Yes. Right? Right now it's, to it's, ruin in the world's ending is what Amir says after he finds Eowyn's body. Right. Right? Um, and he thinks that, like, some what devilry is this? <laughs> like, who conjured my sister here and then killed her? Yep. Right? I mean, like, it's, like, this incredible, this, like, evil miracle that has happened. Right? I wonder how much of that it has to do with... I mean, so much of so much goes into making a moment like that in the film. So much of it is the score as well. I'm just thinking, like that moment in the film was so awesome. It is. It was it just is. so cool that I'm not thinking right. about hope and despair. No. I'm just thinking about how cool this is. Right yes, now. and that's like the their courage as they're riding into battle. The this is why again the 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 counterpoint the the response shots that we get to their arrival, that prompt us to respond, are not from the city. Mm. It's from the orcs. Yep. It's the orcs' fear. Um, well, they're like confusion, and then the progress towards fear, and then being swept away, right? Yeah. Oh, which is just such a wonderful progression. Again, I, just, I love, love, love this scene, but it's doing something very, very different from mm. what the arrival of the Rohirrim at Pelennor does. Um, and so I think it's... Um, how would I characterize the themes that they're developing in the, in the, like, golly, it sounds flat to say courage, you know, but the, I mean, Eowyn straight up says it. Yeah. Courage, Mary, courage Courage. for our friends. Like, so, okay. Yeah. So, all right. Now we've got courage, which is such, there's so much bravado. Right. And the, not just facing, but embracing death Mm. um, for the sake of, you know, which is charging in, and which is what Theoden's saying, but at no point was that what I was feeling. Right, right. Yeah, because it's just so cool. Exactly, and then the Mumakil come, 
right? So they have the first like almost unresisted uh, charge through the arcs at speed. Yep. And then the Mumakil come in and the reform the line, right? The now the emphasis is on. Um, so first it was the courage to make the charge, right? We're going to. Um, we're gonna go forth into battle. We're gonna go courage for our friends, as Awen says. Then we're going to persevere in that courage. Even when now, um, you know, the shoe seems on the other foot. Right, yeah. That, now the elephants are charging at them like they were charging at the That moment feels much more desperate. Yes. Um, and now it's the resolution to face that. Again, death they were chanting and now death they're facing in the elephants that are charging down and the you know the the mumakil charging down on them um those seem to be the direction that's and then instead of like hope being you catastrophically rewarded you know or arriving on unlooked for at the end of the battle when aragorn shows up Mm -hmm. um we do get a you catastrophic appearance and a sudden end to the battle. Um, but it doesn't feel like hope renewed is not the effect that yeah. Aragorn's arrival has. Um, there's some relief, but it's almost like Aragorn's arrival and the um, army of the dead is like the, the final, what? I don't know what, affirmation of the courage? Like... Um, it seems to me to have a subordinate place to the courage of the Rohirrim in that. Yeah, uh, to some extent, do you feel like things just don't get bad enough? It's also, I feel it's a little undercut by the fact that you know that the army of the dead is on the way. Right, right. Um, oh, y- the rest of the Battle of Pelennor, you mean, is undercut by that. Well, no, I mean the whole of the Battle of Pelennor. Right. Do you, it, um, and... And yeah, do you feel like things maybe just didn't get bad enough in the films? To feel the despair? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I would, my first answer was going to be like, yes, totally. And then I was like, but actually when I think of it, things were actually worse in the film. In the sense that like, would the trolls invade? And the, the, like, the city... Right, they made it up to like, what, at least the second level of the least, city. At least, I think higher. Yeah. Right, I mean... The, the, and the, you know, the orcs and trolls are like running rampant through Minas Tirith, which doesn't really happen in the books. Uh, so um, in some ways, it's actually the conditions are worse in the film, but it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it. I wonder why that is. Yeah. Um, but. Because I, I, I would agree with you. Yeah. Like, but if you asked me to list the ways that it wasn't as bad couldn't give you any yeah it's it's hard um and they transform so much of it they make they take things which are like physical or spiritual evils in the book and make them physical Mm. um like instead of the nazgul merely flying overhead and exerting a pall of fear and despair upon the city they're like swooping down and wrecking things physically right and what a tough what a what a what an amazing narrative device for for a a text yeah and what a tough thing to try to on, on film <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly yeah you see that black speck in the sky that's 
causing despair everywhere. Just trust us. Yep. Like, yeah, that's so threatening. Don't you viewers feel threatened by that black speck in the sky? I'm sure you're feeling this with us now, right? I mean, that's, that would be really hard to convey. Yeah. Absolutely, it really would. Um, so again, but again, I think that, the, you know, so when we look through what's happening in the film there, I mean, I do think the arrival of the Army of the Dead at the end of the Battle of Pelennor Field is a blemish. Like, mm-hmm. I, I would count that as one of the less successful elements of, not just of that scene, but of the films as a whole. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, if I had to, if I were forced to make things to complain about, not about the adaptation, but about the story of the films itself, mm-hmm. that's one of my least favorite moments. I think that d- that's not very successful. Um, certainly far less successful than the whole rest of the battle up to that point, which is just amazingly powerful. Um, but, um, but again, I think big picture, we are seeing another example of these themes. All these themes that I'm describing, all this stuff that's going on, it's all there. Like yeah. that's all perfectly, those are all native citizens of Tolkien's world, right? Um, that, you know, the courage for your friends, the willingness to face death, even that, you know, the chant of death and the, and then, you know, standing firm when, you know, an undaunted when the Muma killed charge, like all of that stuff. It's very native to Tolkien's world. Um, but very different from what was going on in the Battle of Pelennor Field in the book. Um, and, but this leads me, we should probably end because we're over time. We're indulging ourselves and in going over time. And I was like, well, Maggie's no, no longer here <laughs> to stop us. So, um, but um, to kind of bring it around to a bigger picture sort of adaptation conclusion, mm-hmm. this strikes me as, um, the kind of freedom that you take with a book, a really good kind of freedom to take with the story, the book story. Um, like, it's a really good formula for, you know, staying true to the book and yet telling your own story. Mm-hmm. Like, you're shaping it in a completely different way. Um, and there are always going to be differences. I mean, the, one of the other downfalls of it is that you have had Tolkien fans for 20 years saying, dude, Denethor, what the heck? You know, like, and one of the things that they're missing is, I mean, despair is the central story of his character arc. And when you remove that from his character, what's left? Crazy is all that's left in the film, right? Um, And that seems, and I think it really is, a cheapening of his character. Like, film Denethor is just not as powerful a character. Um, as book Denethor is. And so that kind of comparison, a lot of people you know, are like, well, you know, not great. You know, <laughs> not great. Um, they screwed up Denethor is then what you get people saying. But, but again, like, so again, there are costs. There are costs to these kinds of changes, but um, the way that they've constructed it, and I'm not sure, you know, I, I think it's a good idea. I think having, like, doing the hope and despair thing at Helm's Deep mm-hmm. then sets up the Battle of Pelennor Field, these other themes at the Battle of Pelennor Field in a different way, Mm because we've already had that. Right. Um, And we've already seen it. We've already learned from that in the Two Towers, right? Um, So, again, it's, they're telling their story. They're not just trying to, like, in the big picture, do what you were just describing in the small, they're not trying to replicate the effect of the Nazgul in the sky, Mm -hmm. right? They're not trying to say, like, well, at this point, in this moment in the story, the book was doing these things. So let's make sure we're doing these things at this time, right? Um, they f- felt a 
apparently, um, a significant freedom to, to shuffle that around, redo that, and yet, at the end of the day, people don't even notice how different it is. Mm -hmm. Like, people don't even, you know, people are like, oh yeah, they follow the book so closely. And I'm like, no, they didn't follow the book that closely. Um, or they did and they didn't, you know. Um, but, but again, that's, that's fine. That's good adaptation. That's yeah. good storytelling that they're doing there. And I think that's really cool. Um, but yeah, we've wandered a little bit far away from Galadriel, but that's okay. It was fun talking about the Battle of Pelennor Field too. All right, um, we should wrap up. We should wrap up. Um, uh, thanks for joining us again. So um, we're going to be back here again next week. Um, uh, we should be back here again next week. Uh, Maggie's still going to be here. Uh, as long as Maggie, Maggie's visiting the States here um, uh, in New Hampshire, we're going we're gonna to try to take advantage of the opportunity to, uh, to broadcast in person together. Um, so we'll be back next week for another discussion. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we will see you guys soon. Bye now.